All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. Follow the crew out behind you. And the rest of us, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere within reach. Definitely grab one so you can follow along as we uh, really continue and ascend in our time of worship. Uh, Worship certainly includes singing and praising, praying, and it also includes uh, hearing the Word of God and studying and meditating, chewing on God's inerrant Word to strengthen and transform us. We are in a uh, a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, and we started at chapter 1, verse 1, and find ourselves here in chapter 6. Change. The good news of Christ coming to earth, becoming a man, living, dying on the cross, and rising from the grave, is not only a message of God's infinite love, his free gift of forgiveness, the pardon of sins, the cleansing from sin, the releasing from sin, the granting of eternal life. It's also a message of change, of transformation. This is what we're seeing in Romans 6. As if it wasn't enough, what we've seen in chapters 1 through 5, that God says, despite the ways we've fallen short of God's perfection, his holiness, his good plan, uh, he, said there's, he says there's more. And it's a message of change, of transformation. Romans 6 is kind of a mini-series in itself on the topic of sanctification. Uh, that term, if you're not familiar, it's just a Christian theological term that means the change that God brings about in Every Christian and everyone that he saves, he transforms. Or everyone that he justifies, he sanctifies. And so this is what we're looking at in Romans chapter 6. I'm actually going to start in chapter 5, verse 20 to read, just to get a little bit of context. And I'll be reading through verse 11. God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative and sufficient word reads, Romans 5, Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For... If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, 
in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the reading of the Word of God. Well, in case you haven't been with us, or if you've been out for a bit, just a a word about Romans, what's happening here, the context, the setting. Uh, Romans has been rightly understood throughout the centuries, the millennia, as the most important book in the Bible, because it lays out in wonderful detail and clarity the most important message that you'll ever hear in the universe, and that is the good news of the gospel, gospel meaning good news itself, the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans, just sort of a 50,000 foot level idea of the book, it can be divided up as follows. Romans 1 through Romans 3 to verse 20. Remember they added the verses in the chapter uh, delineations later, about a thousand years after God gave us his word, the New Testament at least. Uh, Romans 1 through 3.20 talks about condemnation. In other words, that because of our human sin, we're under, we're naturally under God's condemnation, having fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans turns a corner in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5, which we recently finished, and talks about the topic of justification. Justification, which addresses and discusses how God in his mercy, not because he had to, but because he chose to be motivated by his love, how he addresses the issue of human condemnation, and it is through this term justification, which we'll uh, review in just a second briefly. But then Romans takes a, another turn in chapter 6 through 8 to talk of sanctification. And the rest of the book we'll, we'll chit-chat about later uh, as we get to it in our study. For the meantime, condemnation, Romans 1 through 3, justification, 3 through 5, and sanctification, 6 through 8. Just sort of a flyover. So, condemnation addressed and told us of our great need for Christ, that no matter how hard we try, in our own nature, we are, we are fallen short of God's glory. We are corrupt. Our spiritual DNA is bent towards saying, no, thank you to God, I'll be my own God. Uh, no, thank you, God, I'll, I'll write my own script and be my own Lord and Savior. And so there's a sense in which, whether through external morality or external immorality, we're born shaking our fist at God. But God did not leave us in that state. He came down, motivated by his love, and not being moved to just throw in the towel and write us off and say, forget it. No, he was moved by his own grace and his own love and became a man, Jesus Christ. And Christ lived that life that we never could. And he died a death on the cross in our place. Christ, he died... He, he shouldn't have died because the wages of sin is death and Christ never sinned. But he died in our place as a sub- substitute. And that term justification, 
recall, as we've studied, if you've been with us, it means this idea of what's called double imputation. That on the cross, God imputed or reckoned or counted or credited all the sin of everyone who would believe on Christ and go to heaven. He credited it to Christ and treated Christ as if he had committed those sins and therefore Christ died. And at the same time, that's the first half of imputation. The second half of imputation and justification is that that sinner, when they believe, whenever in life, the instant they put saving faith in Jesus Christ, which is a gift of God, God also credits or imputes the righteous life of Jesus Christ to them, where that very instant, not gradually because of their moral virtue or their works, but the very instant based on God's grace through faith, God credits the life of Christ to us. And you'll never hear better news than that. You'll never hear a more loving message, a more gracious, merciful message than that justification by faith alone in Christ alone. All our sin is taken care of. It's so certain that it's as if when Christ went into the grave, the record of our sins went into the grave with him. And as Christ was buried, so were our sins buried forever. And the scripture says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed our sins from us. He's thrown them into the bottom of the sea. Christ was so holy, so sinless, and so God, that his own death buries, his own burial buries our sins. And he rose from the grave, triumphant, to show that he is the Savior. And so this is everything that Romans says in Romans 1 through 5. Now, what's happening in Romans 6 if you were with us last week, a very important text, and we studied verse 1 to 2. Please get that message if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. What happens is people are hearing that message of justification by faith, and in particular in the first century context, they're hearing the Apostle Paul preach that. And a group of individuals called Judaizers, who for the most part believed and taught that, well, you can believe on Christ, but you also have to do like a lot of good works to, to, to get into heaven, which is false. That's heresy. So they hear Paul say that message of justification, and they, and they say, hold on, Paul, hit the brakes here. <laughs> if you tell people that, that <laughs> just by believing on Christ, simply by putting faith in Jesus, that all of their sins, even the ones they haven't committed yet, they're all buried, they're not held against them, and that God looks at them as if they lived Christ's life, that they permanently stand righteous before God, the Judaizers are saying, if you say that to people, they're going to do what we studied last week. They're going to become what is called antinomian. Antinomian. Anti-N-O-M-I-A-N. And that's just a fancy term that means they're going to live, just continue to live sinful lives abuse God's grace and say, oh, great, we have this forgiveness. We're righteous in Christ. I can just live however I want. I can run up my sin meter because who cares how I live? Who cares if I disobey the commands of God? Who cares if I sin? I'm righteous in Christ. So that's the accusation that sparks Paul to write, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Romans 6. And so Paul says, look there in Romans 6.1. He says, He's responding to the accusation, Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? 
And he, and he, he asks their question, the, uh, the accusers, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be, verse 2. And in the Greek there, that's, that's the strongest term of negation in the Greek language. No way. Absolutely not. Verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So last week, we saw in verse 1, there's the accusation, namely that justification or the gospel seems antinomian. It seems like people are just going to be, great, fire insurance, I can just continue to live like the devil. And then verse 2, Paul responds with, no, the certainty of sanctification. That sanctification, that change in a believer's life is inevitable, which nullifies any idea that a true believer who receives the message of the gospel is going to just abuse God's grace. And so the rest of chapter 6, what Paul is doing, he's just, he's explaining the thesis. The thesis is in verse 2. How shall we who live in sin, how shall we who die to sin, excuse me, still live in it? And from chapter, from, excuse me, verse 3 all the way through verse 23 of chapter 6, Paul is just like talking about that in different ways. And it's such a big deal to him. It's so important. It's so essential to understand. And even in the 21st century church, it's, this, is, this message is so missed. I don't know why, because it's clear as day in chapter 6. It's so missed that us today, Paul then, spills a necessary, a, a necessary large amount of ink to discuss this. So, our mini-series here on sanctification, chapter 6. And from the text for our outline this morning, we're going to see three things that happen to everyone who becomes a Christian. Three things that happen to everyone who actually, truly becomes a Christian. And these things, again, launching off of verse 2, that... that really talk about sanctification, further clarify sanctification. In other words, the change that everyone will experience who puts faith in Jesus, who's going to heaven, who has been justified, regenerate, all, this, all those terms that communicate becoming a Christian. Three things that happen to everyone who becomes a Christian. These are miracles of God's grace. Very important to notice in the text in verse 3 and 4, there's not a single command Nowhere is God saying in verse 3 and 4, you, like, try hard to do this. He's not saying that. He's saying, God is in effect saying, this is what I do. This is the miracle I perform in everyone who becomes a Christian. This isn't a how-to. This isn't a, you know, try gooder, be, hard, be, be more moral. That, that'll come later. God's just saying, no, this is what I do. This is my work of grace. Very, very important. Number one, and these are all metaphors. Like you see, you see the metaphorical language that, that we're dead, baptized, buried, resurrection. Number one, immersion into Christ and his death. Number one, the first thing that happens, immersion into Christ and his death. What does that mean? We'll talk about it. There's Paul likes theology. God likes theology because he's God. There's lots of theology that that needs, needs to be expounded and chewed on by us here for the so what. Immersion into Christ and his death, verse 3. Paul begins, look at verse 3. Verse 3, or do you not know 
So Paul likes to say that often, likes to get in our kitchen and nudge us a little bit. Uh, And two things are happening here when he says, or do you not know, beginning of verse 3, number 1, he's he's connecting this to what he just said in verse 1 and 2. I'm still talking about sanctification. And two, he's saying, look, guys, this is kind of like 101 stuff here. The answer should be, yeah, of course we know. This is pretty basic, he's saying. In other words, that everyone whom God justifies, he sanctifies. This is basic stuff. What is? Verse 3. That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. So here's the first thing that happens to everyone that God does to everyone that when they become a Christian, immersion into Christ's death. So what, what are we talking about, immersion into his death. This, this comes off the word baptize. First, a couple of things what this is not talking about. There's, in, throughout history, there's been a little bit of confusion about this text. This is not, when it's talking about baptism here in verse 3, it's not talking about water baptism. There's no, there's no H2O in this verse. This is a dry verse. It's a metaphor. The context prohibits that idea for a few reasons. It can't be talking about that because... This verse is saying, in effect, God does this to everybody who becomes a Christian. And yet, not everybody who becomes a Christian gets water baptized. We, we should if we're able to, but you have like deathbed conversions. You have the thief on the cross, Luke chapter 23, uh, verse 37 to 43. That guy gets saved two minutes before he dies. He puts faith in Jesus. Jesus says, you're going to be in heaven today. And then he dies. So it's not talking about water baptism. The context is the newness of life, right? Remember the context? Paul's talking about the change that happens consequent of salvation. Not getting in water. The text doesn't say, furthermore, in verse 3, that we're baptized into water, but it says we're baptized into Christ. So what is it teaching? The Greek word in the first century for baptize, it just means immerse. Or dip. Uh, in, in ancient Greek, the, the term baptize, that's a transliteration, uh, it was used to describe a ship that sank, and so it became baptized into the sea, or it sunk into the sea, submerged into the sea. Uh, the word was used to describe drowning. Another interesting use of the word, uh, an ancient Greek document was found around this time uh, of a recipe for making pickles in the first century, and the word baptize is used in the recipe. Uh, In the ancient Greek, it says that the vegetable, presumably a cucumber, uh, was baptized into the boiling water, and then it was baptized into vinegar, the vinegar solution, right? Immersed entirely uh, into something. And incidentally, when I was studying for this text, I all of a sudden found myself with the refrigerator door open, grabbing a spicy gorilla's pickle. Um, But anyhow, baptize, immerse. So verse 3, baptized into Christ and baptized into his death. So this is saying that in some way, at conversion, every Christian is immersed into the person of Christ and his death. Again, metaphor. What this is talking about is the, the, the sacred doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, one of my professors, says that Christ's union, the Christian's union with Christ, 
is the most wonderful reality and the most wonderful doctrine because of everything it encompasses. We are immersed spiritually into Christ. This is in part why we change, why we go to heaven, why we think different, why we cannot lose our salvation because you're immersed into Christ. Every time you see that phrase, in Christ, in the New Testament, I mean it's in the New Testament a lot. This is speaking about our union with Christ. As a kid, a teenager and a college student, I spent a lot of time in France, sort of grew up there in some sense, and I used to love riding the metro, or the subway, around downtown Paris. And those of you who've ridden subways, you understand, you, you come to the dock, the thing pulls up, and you got about seven and a half seconds to get in that door. And when you get in that thing, ready or not, it closes and it speeds away. And you can tell someone who's kind of a tourist rookie uh, with uh, the subways because they forget to hold on and then physics happens and they can proceed to experience physics. But more to the point, when you get in the subway, you are united to that subway. The doors close. You are traveling where it is traveling. Where it goes, you go. You're immersed into it. And that's just sort of a silly idea of this far greater truth, the sacred idea of union with Christ. We immerse into him. Immersion. Our new position as a Christian is the most wonderful status a human could ever have. United to the God-man, united to the Savior, immersed into Christ. Regardless of how we feel, regardless of how a certain day we may be thinking, you know, I just don't feel close to God, or I, I just feel like, you know, God is silent with me here, and, and our feelings have zero to do with this. The scripture says we are immersed by faith, if we become a Christian, we're immersed into Christ. Now, one great thing this means is that we're not able to be unimmersed from Christ. When that subway took off, sometimes Paris is kind of a rowdy city, even 30 years ago when I used to spend a lot of time there, people would try to open the doors when the subway was busted along at 60 miles an hour underground, and they couldn't do it. Uh, you cannot open those doors. You're immersed in the subway. In the same way, when you immerse into Christ as a Christian, Christ isn't going to open those doors and let Satan in or let whatever trial or any other hardship in to pull that Christian out of immersion into him. The moment we are saved, we're justified by faith, Christ shuts the door and nothing can take us out or exclude us or eject us out of Christ. And notice this in saying, well, is that only for like really good Christians? There's nothing in verse 3 or 4 that says, well, this is only for super Christians or elite Christians. It's we. He's saying, we. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, therefore we were buried with him. This we in chapter 6 is the same we that was in chapter 5, those who were saved by faith. Every Christian is immersed into Christ. Notice as well, Verse 3, do you not know all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then same in verse 4, we were buried. These are all passive verbs. 
Again, emphasizing, as mentioned earlier, that these aren't, this isn't something that we do. This isn't something that we have to figure out and exert ourselves and kind of try hard morally to, to make this happen. It's, it's passive, means it's done upon us. God does it. Immersion is something that God has done. Furthermore, notice at the end of verse 3, we've been baptized into his death. This makes sense since we're united with him. He died and we died. Obviously, it's not talking about physical death. He died long before we were alive. What's what's this talking about, that we were baptized into his death? Context, again, remember, is change, sanctification. So the antinomian accusation last week, if you tell people this, they'll just live abusively and, and never change and say, great, I'm going to heaven, I don't, need to, I don't need to sin. Paul says that's not so. So to be immersed into Christ's death is the idea that spiritually, everyone who becomes a Christian dies to sin. Since Christ died for sin long ago, the moment God regenerates a person and they become a Christian, they die to sin. He's just further explaining what he said in verse 2. This does not mean a Christian will never sin. However, it it does mean that they are radically different. Sin is dead to them. It's repulsive. And much more will be talked about later in 6 and 7. But we are immersed into his death. And if you back up again a minute and think about death, death changes, what does death do, just generally speaking? It changes the nature of the way that the thing that died relates to other things. Right? If there's a terrible odor, you're alive, you can smell it. If you die, you can't smell it anymore. Changes the nature of how you relate to things. So... If we're immersed into Christ's death, if every Christian is immersed and dipped into him in his death, it means that the nature of the way we relate to sin is forever changed. Okay, just basic stuff starting out here as we're gaining momentum in the text. It means the nature of the way that the Christian relates to sin forever changes. God does this. You're not the same We do not continue in sin. Verse 2. So, this idea of immersion into his death rules out any idea that becoming a Christian is merely just like an intellectual decision. Uh, Someone says, yeah, you know, uh, I've decided to believe something different. It's just I'm checking a different, you know, political survey box. Secular, and now this year I check Christian. It it totally rules that out because to be immersed into Christ and his death, it's it's a total union with Christ. It's a changing of a nature. It doesn't mean I've just prayed a prayer or kind of repeat these words after me. No, salvation, beloved, means complete dipping and submerging into union with Christ, into, into the Jesus of the Bible. And so... As we think about becoming a Christian, it's not really like attaching a new thing to your schedule now and then as it's convenient for you. Uh, Or, you know, 
making some new priorities in my schedule now and then. Certainly it will look like that, but more fundamentally, it's, it means something far greater. Immersing myself into someone and something far greater than myself. Becoming a Christian isn't a new spiritual hobby that I attach to me, but union with Christ. Immersion of the whole self, dunking and plunging myself into Christ, which God does. Again, God does this. This communicates the significance of change. Not just a little change of opinion, but a complete change of the person consequent of God immersing them in to Christ. One of my favorite things to do on God's earth is swim in the ocean. I like swimming in the ocean. Few things match the experience of just feeling so small, especially swimming in the ocean like where you can't touch, like you're out of ways. And you just feel so small, so overwhelmed uh, by the massive, astronomically huge body of water, especially if you're in the Pacific, the largest body of water on the planet. And with immersion, I mean, you picture yourself swimming in the Pacific, being immersed in the ocean. It's an unspeakable amount of water around you. And so it is with being immersed into Christ, totally surrounded by him. Now, this also means that we're immersed into grace. Being immersed into Christ also means we're immersed into his grace. That's why verse 20 in chapter 5 said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Like swimming in the ocean, where I abound in the ocean, in the Pacific, the water abounds quite a bit more around me. Grace isn't some abstract concept. It's, it's a consequence of God's love extended to me by faith in Christ. So, number one, what happens to a Christian? They're immersed in Christ. By the way, this, this verse tells us why uh, the mode of, of water baptism is to be immersion. First of all, the word just means immersion. But it also pictures what happens, again, when a person is saved, immersed united to Christ. And so going into the water, it pictures that death that we die with Christ, the spiritual cleansing, we're, as if we're buried with Christ, and we rise out of the water, cleansed to a new life. Number two, the second thing that happens when you become a Christian, burial of the old self. Burial, number two, of the old self. Now Paul is going to get a little more picturesque and specific, building off of immersion, burial of the old self. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. You need to stop right there. Again, obviously a metaphor. The old self is buried. Consequent of our immersion with Christ, we've been buried. Why, why, why this idea of burial? It's interesting. Uh, scripture in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they mention, they all spill ink, mentioning that Jesus was buried. Even in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's talking about the gospel, they say Jesus was buried. Why take time 
to talk about that. Obviously, if he died, he's going to be buried. Because, to emphasize, that this death really happened. This death was real. Christ wasn't like knocked out for a while and unconscious. When our sins were laid upon him, he didn't like go comatose. And then someone, you know, did some proverbial CPR on the, on the grave on the third day, and boom, look at that. He was dead, like buried dead, burial dead. Gives us assurance, by the way, of, our, of atonement, of forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, Hebrews 9.22. So scripture emphasizes Christ's burial to emphasize the finality of death. And that's kind of what burial is. You know, the, all of you have been through hard, to sorrowful situations. Death of a loved one. Uh, Leslie and I were thinking about this. Today is three years since her dear brother passed away and exited this world. And when, when you see a burial, it's like there's a, you know, you know the person has passed, you know they're dead, but going into the ground, there's like a finality kind of a sobriety, a pause, an emphasis on the death, a total removal from this world. What's the point? God wants us to see here, beloved, what he does when you become a Christian. Burial of the old self. Not just a death, but I'm putting that old man, that old thing of you, in the ground. In his compassionate mercies, he buries the old self. What's the old self? The old self is a term that scripture often uses to describe who we were, Ephesians 4.22, among other places, prior to salvation. That dead self, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that valued things, thought things, loved things, did things, went after things that are all contrary to the word of God. So, let's just say law on this for a moment. Justification, becoming a Christian, it's so much more than just repeat these words after me, say a prayer, walk an aisle, at camp, I threw a pine cone in the fire, whatever. It is a removal of the old self from this world. And putting that thing in the ground, that old you, burying it and putting lots of dirt over it to where it's gone. This, is, this verse here and this concept is parallel to what Jesus says in Luke 9.23. Where Jesus says in Luke 9.23, remember the crowds are getting huge. And whenever crowds got huge, Jesus would say harder stuff to make sure that we're doing this for the right reasons. And he said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And if you were wearing first century sandals that day, and you heard Jesus say, take up your cross, the first century listener only, only pictured one thing. The cross was the infamous execution tool in the Mediterranean world. And so it meant you were going to die. And Jesus is saying that's what salvation means. Not die physically, but spiritually, metaphorically. It's the end of the old you. Sin, your pride, loving to be your own Lord, 
uh, craving to be your own king, it's buried. It's gone. Romans 6 is speaking then and is telling us and sitting us down and saying, first of all, saying how good of God, how good of God to not just forgive our sins and impute the righteousness of Christ to us, but to take our old self and to walk us out and say, we're going to have a funeral today. The day of your, convu- of your conversion, the day you put faith in Christ, the moment you believe upon Jesus as your Savior, this isn't gradual, this is that day. The God of the universe says, it's funeral time. We're not going to put this off. It's not, well, you believe on me, and 20 years later, we're going to have a funeral. It's today. We're having a funeral to bury this old self. And that is what it means to become a Christian without which there is no becoming a Christian and a person has not yet become a Christian. It's, we, we have to let the Bible speak on this issue, not culture or sentiment. And so becoming a Christian isn't, you know, becoming a better me. It's the death and burial of me. Becoming a Christian isn't reaching inside to discover your new potential. It's the lowering in entirety of the old self that was against the values of the word of God and putting them in, the, in a deep hole in the ground, never to return. Becoming a Christian, getting saved, isn't making a few upgrades on you. And, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll be a more positive person. That's what I'll be, a more, a more benevolent, a more fortuitously charitable person. That, 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 that's what I'll do. That, that's what I'm going to do this year, a resolution. That's nothing what it means. It means you are dead. The old you is gone, buried under a lot of earth. And it's not going to be like Houdini, which was able to get out of the earth. No Houdiniing and salvation. So what a power of God and what a love of God in saving someone. To say at our spiritual birth, I mean, the day you become a Christian, it's a funeral and it's a birth. It's a funeral here in Romans 6, 4. And it's a birth, John 3, 3 to 8, in regeneration. And the two happen simultaneous. This is what God does. And in fact, to emphasize how real this is, notice the analogy that the text makes. Back to verse 4. We were buried with him through baptism into death. So the analogy is the burial and the death of Christ. So how real is this? It's as real as Christ was buried. If Christ was buried, then your old self is buried and you die to sin. And the same is going to be true of resurrection. So every time a sinner bows a knee in faith to Christ and is saved, there's a funeral. There's a funeral. The old self isn't just comatose, put on life support, Knocked out a little bit, dead. So our old self is it's like a corpse rotting in the ground. The old ways of life, foul, rotting, stench, buried. Beloved, for those of us who have received the gift of eternal life, there should be zero appeal to the old ways. Zero. There should be no more appeal 
to our old ways, then there's appeal to going to a graveyard and digging up a corpse and bringing that corpse around with me to work, to bed, to dinner, sit in the thing next to me, go to a movie with it. There should be no more appeal to my sin and my old ways of life than chilling out with a corpse. And when we do still sin, because we do, and Romans 6 is going to talk about this, this isn't teaching perfection. When I find myself doing so and going back to the thoughts and the old ways of my old man, it's as if I've gone to the garage and uh, picked up my shovel, picked up my backhoe, taken a trip to the graveyard, dug up, dug up a rotting corpse, tied it to myself, and go strolling around. When I return to the slop of my sin, again, it's like digging up a corpse and carrying it around with me. Now, a caution with this text. Sometimes people will hear this text and say, you know, that's a, this idea of change, that's a good positive message, and I need to make a few changes. And Christianity, for some, can be about just turning a few moral dials in our life, making a few moral adjustments. And they're like the tragic situation that Jesus spoke of in Luke 11.26, where this guy tries to do that, and he, and he ends up being worse off later. So frustrated with everybody else. And eventually, the situation becomes clear that he's never changed. And so in these situations, individuals, people want to staple some morality to their life in order to boost their self-esteem, failing to realize that eternal life means coming to Christ because you're sick of your sin, because you're sick of yourself. This is fundamentally why you come to Christ. You are sick of yourself, of your sin, and you realize that you are under the judgment of God, which is why in Luke 18, 9 to 13, the tax collector cries out saying, Lord, be, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's sick of himself. He knows he's under God's judgment. And that and only that is the reason a person comes to faith in Christ, gets saved, and is going to heaven. It's not to staple morality. It's not to make some adjustments. So if we try to detour the cross and say, well, that idea of change makes like, that's, that's a nice thing for society. We all, we all need that. That's like a corpse walking around and writing some moral suggestions, some hallmark self-esteem sayings on some sticky notes and just stapling it and sticking it to the corpse. Look inside of you. Do better. Doggone it, you're a good person and you can do gooder. With a corpse walking around with hallmark suggestions stapled on it. And so what we have to realize is we have to go back and not put the cart before the horse and be saved first. Not by trying harder but throwing up our hands and saying we can't try at all and put faith in Jesus Christ. So the great need of, for all of us in the human race isn't sticky note morality on a corpse. It's to fall down before Jesus Christ and cry out to him. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you can't be a Christian without having died to sin. Well, third and finally, the third thing that happens when someone becomes a Christian, they walk in newness of life. They walk in newness of life. End of verse four. 
They walk in newness of life. Look at the end of verse 4. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the text continues to use the saving historical work of Christ as a basis for the fact that God will change everyone. Analogous. And here the great news of his resurrection. Praise God, Christ did not stay dead. He did not. His, he was in there, in the grave. He was buried. But all of that was overcome in his physical resurrection when miraculously he took a, he took a new body to himself. Never to die again. And it says, by the glory of the Father, the glory and the power of the Father, Jesus rose never to die again, conquering our greatest enemies. And it is so good that Christ is risen. I mean, that's a big, comfy pillow for the human race. Whatever you're facing and will face, you can't take away what the resurrection means. Now, the resurrection means something different than we usually think about the resurrection and what it means. Typically, and necessarily, we think about the resurrection means we're going to be resurrected bodily one day, never to die, and you will be. You will be, 1 Corinthians 15. John 5, teach that. But here, it's, the context isn't the future. The context is now in the change that a Christian experiences. And so the analogy is, just like Christ bodily was risen from the dead, when a person becomes a Christian, they spiritually rise from the dead. They experience a spiritual resurrection. So it's not only that we're immersed into Christ and his death. doesn't stop there. There's this newness of life that happens. Verse 4. And in the first century con- context here, in first century Greek, there's two words that uh, the Greek had for new. One of them talked about new in time, and another referred to new in quality. And the Greek word that means new in quality is what's used here in newness of life. That we would walk in newness and quality of life. So when we come to Christ, we are spiritually buried, die, and then we are resurrected spiritually to walk in newness of life. And by the grace of God, the Christian will. They will walk in newness of life. Sometimes it's one little step, and it can be a hard step, but they will walk. And recall that the, 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 the word walk in New Testament, it's always used and frequently used to describe the progression of the Christian life. I'm moving forward. God is growing me. We're, we're not stagnant here. Sometimes little steps, sometimes very, 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 very small steps, sometimes bigger, but steps nonetheless. Now, it doesn't say we will walk in perfection of life. Paul's not teaching some goofy concept of Christian perfection. But it does say newness and walk. So, life before and after salvation. It's like a guy before, it's like a guy walking down a, a dark, filthy street filled with garbage and sewage and disease. And then at conversion, he's picked up and he's put on a new road. And on that road, it's, it's a clean road, there's no garbage. There's grass along the road. However, the road is a little bumpy and it's uphill. 
So there's exertion. There's stumbling and tripping at times. But it's a new road. It's not that the Christian is like, well, I'm, I'm going to kind of adjust myself on this road. You're out of here, God says. You're, you're on a new road. Put another way, it's like a, it's like a dead fish prior to life in Christ. You're like, a, you're like a dead fish floating down some foul, polluted stream, just going the direction of the stream. And then at regeneration, God makes that fish alive, puts that fish in a clean, blue ribbon, pristine stream. And it has to swim upstream in its effort. But it's in an entirely new stream. Without which that fish is dead going down a foul stream. So, all of these texts together is teaching that sanctification, living the new holy life in Christ, is absolutely certain for the believer. How do we know? Again, the analogy the text makes. Look at, look at verse 4 again. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, right? So we would walk in newness of life. And don't get hung up on that term, might. There's a, a little Greek technicality in there. Think about the analogy. As Christ was raised from the dead, so we will walk in newness of life. As certain as Christ was raised bodily from the dead, so it is certain that the Christian will walk in life spiritually in a spiritual newness. In other words, if the bodily resurrection of Christ actually happened, so will the Christian walk in newness of life. And put another way, if there's no such thing, or if there is such thing, we should say, if there is such thing as someone who is a Christian who does not walk in newness of life, then there is such thing that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Last week we used the illustration that the Christian's life is like a two-volume book. Before Christ, first volume, second volume after Christ. You could also say it's like two people. I mean, as I think back in my life, prior to Christ, it, it's surreal. It's like, it's like I'm looking and I have memories. It's like I'm watching a movie of someone else. It's so bizarre and so foreign, even though it certainly was me. And so the life of a believer, it's two different people, is what this text is saying. The old one goes down into the grave and it's salvation, a new one comes up all by the grace of God. So then this text rules out the popular idea that someone can become a Christian and not change. There's just zero room for that, tech, for that idea anywhere in Romans 6 at all. Not perfect, but that they don't change, that they're not conformed into Christ-likeness and will not have new desires, aspirations, motivations, and doings of holiness. Such a person has not been saved. That idea that you can like throw out a, well, I believe in Christ, but experience no change, that completely shipwrecks on Romans 6. Such an individual is, it's not because they're worse or whatever than anyone else. They just haven't experienced the miracle of conversion. So they're not yet a Christian. Remember, this isn't about the effort we put in. This is about the miracle of God's grace and conversion and what happens. According to this text, what demonstrates that a person is saved, has come to faith in Christ, is not a prayer that they pray, 
Uh, it's not a verbal profession. Uh, it's not what they say or what they read or a pew they warm. It's a changed life. It is the burial of the old self and the resurrection of the new self unto newness of life, all by the grace of God. So are you saying that this text says that our, our new works in godliness, that that saves us? 10,000 times no, beloved. Romans 3 to 5 told us over and over again that justification is by faith. And this text is saying that all whom God justifies, he sanctifies. It would be radically unloving to give a person some kind of assurance that they're a Christian who has never experienced the type of change that is laid out here in Romans 6. I'd be like telling a guy who you've just seen, he has stage 4 cancer, and the doctor goes and tells him, oh, you're fine. Pat him on the head. You're fine. Just, you know, go eat some broccoli and do some jumping jacks. You're good to go, bro. That would just be catastrophically unloving. And equally is it so, and even more because of the eternal consequences, is it to say something of such an individual that contradicts the teaching of Romans 6. So, if an individual, a little bit of caution here, if an individual were to see, maybe you were to see, you know what, based on that, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm a Christian. The worst thing to think is, well, I should be more moral this week to kind of like give myself some assurance. That is the worst thing to do. Because it is faith, not our works, that saves us. Instead, what all we need to do is fall down and declare our inability to save ourselves before Jesus Christ. In other words, to surrender. If, if you can fall down and tell Jesus you can't do it, you can be saved. If you can fall down and cry out to God and say, I, I can't save myself. I can never be holy enough. I, I can't work my way into heaven. If you can do that, you can be saved. Can you tell God that you can't save yourself? Can you look to the cross? As the Israelites in the wilderness looked up to the bronze snake, they just, if they looked, they lived. Can you fall down and look to Christ and cry out to him? Three things happen when you become a Christian. Immersion into Christ and his death, burial of the old self, and newness of life. And the way all that happens is what we're going to celebrate here at the communion table. All of this, to be saved. To bring about the miracle of conversion into your life. Happens, happens because of what the table represents. There are, there's bread, there's cup. It represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Ingesting bread in the cup does not make you go to heaven. It's a memorial. It's symbolic. Nevertheless, it's very important. And in a way, it's like that immersion idea, right? The bread in the cup, immerse into us. It's like that union with Christ. It's a picture of that. And this is for people who have, in effect, fallen down and looked to Jesus Christ for salvation. If you are somebody who you're, you haven't yet bowed the knee to Jesus, you're not saved, um, you still love your sin, there's some great news today that the message you've heard that God is so merciful, he is so kind, 
He is so, so kind. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll just wipe away all your sins, even the ones you haven't committed yet. Not because of you, but because of what this table represents, that Christ shed his blood, that his body was given and nailed to a cross. And you can just do that today, and in effect, fall down and bow your knee before Jesus and cry out to him. And Romans 10.13 says, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with the mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, he was raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And for the rest of us, this is also for, for believers, and you can come and do that for the very first time. For those of you who are believers, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and on talks about how this is like a, it's a sober, it's a kind of a solemn time. Where Paul tells us there that if we have some unconfessed sin in our lives, if we have like a grudge against somebody, if we are kind of grinding and chafing in our heart against something or someone, whatever it is, it's before God, and we're not willing to ask forgiveness for it, or if there's some sin that we're holding on to, something that we're kind of wrapped up in and we're not willing to ask God's forgiveness for it, whatever it might be, God says, you know, don't partake. Don't blaspheme the cross and what, what Jesus has done and just kind of sit this one out. However, once again, right here, just sitting here, we can cry out to God. We can confess our sins. Not tell him how great we are, but how great he is. And look to the cross and trust in the cross as the sufficient, God-given, and only implement to cancel out our sin, to wipe away, to cleanse us, and to help us anew walk in the newness of life. Whatever it is, take some time. I'll have the musicians come up. If you guys would come on up here. Take whatever time you need. When you're ready, come grab the bread and the cup, and then I'll direct us and we'll take it together.